You're probably aware that education has always been important to the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, in the United States, we have eight different Christian Nazarene colleges in the different regions of the country. After all of my chores and responsibilities were finished yesterday, I sat down in the afternoon on my easy chair, turned on the television, thinking I might see a little bit of March Madness, and it just happened that the first game I switched to was the men's NCAA Division II title game. And I was surprised to see that one of the two teams playing was Point Loma Nazarene University, one of our sister colleges. So of course I had to watch that game, which I, which I did. Um, and it was a fascinating game. The, the Nazarenes had this game plan of uh, a very systematic, disciplined approach, getting points in the paint, and, and the game was neck and neck the whole way. And we got close to the end of the game. They got behind by four or six, and they got nervous, and they started to attempt longer shots that weren't quite in their game plan. And they just sort of unraveled a little bit, and they lost by five or six points or something like that. It was, it was rough. And, I, and as I watched the game, I wondered something. This was the best basketball team that that Nazarene college had ever had in its history. By far, the best ever reached the NCAA Division II national title game. And they lost the title game. And I'm wondering what the narrative is today for them. Do they see themselves as members of the best team the school has ever seen? Or do they see themselves as losers? because they didn't win the title game. How, how do you evaluate that? I mean, if, you're, if your goal for so long has been focused on winning that championship game and you lose it, do you have a story large enough to help you see the big picture or are you just forever a loser? I, I think one of the reasons we humans are so often confused is that we don't know how to think about our lives. The society's standards, well, the standard of success anyway, is measured in dollars, fame, and power. Can you leave a legacy? Can you secure your future or the future of your children? But Christians, we trade all of that in. We, we lay down our pens and our pencils and we stop writing our own story and we learn that the measure of our success, the measure of our significance, the measure of our purpose is how well we allow ourselves to be written into the central story of Jesus. The entire book of Hebrews is trying to help us shift our storyline, to remember that the story of human history is the story of Jesus, that he is the center of everything. And as long as our story continues to be about us, we're doomed to failure, because all humanity is destined to die. But to the extent 
to the extent that we live to find ourselves entwined in his story, that is the extent of our success and our purpose and our meaning. This, this rewrites the whole dialogue and changes our measures of success. If, if our success is in the success of the kingdom of God and the family of God, we can't succeed alone anymore because the story of Jesus is a family story. The success of those around us really does matter. We can't accept the world's standard of success because even if we manage to gain some of those successes, the only success that really matters to us is the success we find in the family of God, which is Jesus' story. We either bring everyone along that we can, or to the extent that we can't, we've fallen short of the ultimate goal. I think this is what Hebrews is trying to tell us. This is what the author wants us to know. Everything is centered on Jesus. If we don't get that part right, none of the rest of it makes any sense. So this morning as we jump back into chapter eight and continue to walk through these chapters of this uh, letter to the Hebrews, I think we need to keep that in mind that that this author is really trying to shift our thinking and help us understand what the appropriate goal is and how we fit into that goal so that regardless of the circumstances that are around us at the moment, we still know who we are. This is Hebrews 8, and I'll just read, I'll just start with verse 6. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. If we're trying to figure out the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is a place we can start to figure it out, okay? He says, the, the Hebrews author is telling us that Jesus has received He's been given a better ministry than the ministry that the Old Testament priests had. There's one difference between the old. There's a better ministry involved. The second thing he says is that the covenant that is established by Jesus, of which he is the mediator and the priest, is superior to the old covenant. So Jesus has a better ministry. He's the priest of a better covenant and that the new covenant comes with better promises than the old covenant. The warranty and promises on the new covenant far exceed the old covenant. And these are reasons why, for this early church who's receiving this letter originally, there's no going back to Judaism. Judaism has been superseded by Christianity according to our scriptures and according to the teachings of the church. Some might argue that Christianity completes Judaism. And I guess I wouldn't argue too strenuously with them as long as they didn't think that Christianity was simply an add-on to Judaism. 
We are not Jews who have found our Messiah in Jesus. We are Christians who by faith in the living Son of God have received forgiveness of sins, entered the kingdom of God, and lived to please the King of kings and Lord of lords according to a new covenant established in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's our identity. Our complete identity is in Jesus. Our salvation is not tied to our ethnicity. It's not tied to our participation in the nation of Israel. With Paul, we count all the trappings of the old covenant as rubbish when compared with the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord. Notice, I didn't say that all the trappings of Judaism were rubbish. I said, when compared with the privilege of knowing Jesus, all the trappings of the old covenant don't amount to anything because the new covenant so far supersedes the old covenant. Let me continue reading the rest of this passage from Hebrews 8, starting in verse 7 now. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So if the old covenant is slipping slowly away, obsolete, soon to disappear, it would be good for us to know what is slipping away and what will soon disappear. Well, the first thing that's slipping away is the entire sacrificial system is going away. From the time this letter is written, well, let's say from the time of Jesus' death, it's only gonna be 35 years, so the temple is gone, and the sacrificial system of Judaism comes completely to a halt. It's done never to rise again. The sacrificial system is slipping away. What's the next thing slipping away? The priesthood that attends the sacrificial system is essentially gone. If there's no need for a priest to mediate or make sacrifices, the priesthood is gone. You'll notice that the leaders of most synagogues are called rabbi. That means teacher. Not the same thing as a priest at all. It's a different function. Rabbis don't have to be from the line of Levi. Uh, there isn't an ancestral need to be tied historically uh, if you're a rabbi. Now, there still are priests in the Jewish faith. Uh, you need a priest to perform some particular rituals on young males 
and there's one other ceremony they do once a year, but their role is mostly confined to this one small ritual and the keeping of the, ethnic, of the ethnicity and hereditary lines. That's the role of the priesthood, because essentially, the role of the priesthood slips away when a new covenant comes. There isn't really a reason for a priesthood anymore. For hundreds of years also, because of this transition, the national identity disappeared. I mean, this is going to return in 1948 with the United Nations resolution so that there will be a secular Israeli state again. But you know as well as I do that what exists as Israel today barely compares to Israel of old. It's a secular nation. It is not by any stretch of the imagination a theocracy. Uh, it's not the same entity because this old covenant has slipped away. It has been superseded by something that is more. And this new covenant, how, how does it supersede the old? What's this author telling us? Well, the first thing he's telling us that while the Old Testament revealed God's commandments to us, revealed God's teachings to help us live healthy lives, now in this new covenant, we are honor bound to keep a different law and it is the royal law of love, which is love God with all, your, with all you are and your neighbor as yourself. The Levitical laws have been superseded by the royal law of love. The second thing that supersedes the Old Testament sacrificial system is that Jesus, our priest, has made a once and done sacrifice for us. So the ongoing need for a sacrificial system is gone. We live now by the grace of God, not by the sacrifices we make to God. We have an eternal priest in heaven who always intercedes for us. We have no need of another priest. Jesus is our eternal priest. And the third thing that's new about this covenant is it is no longer participated in by ancestry. Israel's covenant, you were a part of because you were born into it. It was, it was a corporate covenant with the nation that you just, well, if your parents were, their parents were, you just, you just were. But this new covenant is different. Now we are born into by invitation, right? We still have got to experience a new birth to enter the family of God, but this is a universal invitation to all of humanity, and we all can respond to his gracious invitation to be born anew and enter the family of God. That's a much wider invitation list. You know how brides and grooms, they sort of agonize who they're going to invite to the wedding and they figure, you know, how much, do we have enough resources to invite everybody to the reception? Or The good news about this family invitation is the resources are unlimited and everybody's on the list. Whosoever will, anybody who wants to be, can be saved and can step into this story of Jesus which is at the center of everything that is. That's incredibly good news for us, especially those of us who aren't, by heredity, Jews. 
because you might think that you would be excluded if you weren't Jewish because they were the people of God, but this new covenant just blows the doors off the old one. And everyone is invited in. And the resources are sufficient for everyone to be included. Whether you have it all figured out or not, you're invited. Whether your theological training is on point or messed up, you're invited. Whether you have questions about the world and how it all fits together or not, whether you have lots of doubts or not, you're still invited in. And Jesus essentially says, come and see, we can work those things out. Just come on in and things will start to make sense for you. The new covenant is better than the old covenant in lots of specific ways. The covenant made to Abraham promised that Israel would become a nation and would have a land. The covenant given to Moses was a covenant of blessing tied to keeping rules and teachings that enabled health. The covenant with David promised a ruler would always sit on David's throne. All those things come to fruition in Christ, but the new covenant, sealed in the blood of Jesus, promises eternal life with all the saints in the company of Jesus, who will be our priest, king, and judge. The new covenant promises to us transforming grace that allows us to become better than we are. Grace that breaks the power of canceled sin. Grace that transforms us as we cooperate with the leading of the Spirit in our life. The new covenant promises us the very internal presence of the Holy Spirit individually available to us to help us keep the royal law of love and to guide us in our transformation. Can you see how dramatically different this new covenant is from the old? The old covenant was external. It was rule keeping and ritual performance. To be sure, the rituals and rules were there to teach and guide folks into healthy ways of living. But all of this was external to the individuals. Except in those very specific and unique times in the Old Testament when the Spirit of God came on a particular person to accomplish a particular task. We read about those unique times. But never was the Spirit given to the whole nation because the whole covenant was external to people. But this new covenant is an internal covenant. When we step into the kingdom of God at his invitation, God moves inside of us. That's what this Old Testament prophecy means that the Hebrews author quotes. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they have to teach their neighbor or say to another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This knowledge of God is moving inside. This relationship of God is moving external to internal and so the communication improves. At the camp where I last served at Windsor Hills, um, 
there was not reliable cell phone service, which was both a blessing and a curse. Um, many of the phone calls that folks needed answers from me right away just never reached me, and so I couldn't answer them. But there were places on the campground where you could, if you went to a particular spot and turned a direction and held it up here, you could get a look, you get two bars, and you know, and you, but you had to sort of crane your neck up there to to talk to get the communication because the signal was too weak and the communication was fuzzy. When you step into the kingdom of God, the cell phone tower moves right into your heart. There's no fuzzy connection. There's no difficulty with the communication. There's no escaping the text messages. It's, it's there. We don't have to look at the text messages. We can create noise in our life to confuse ourselves, we can create questions like, is that really you, God, talking when we know that it is? And we can create distance within ourselves, but the definition of stepping into the new covenant is that the Holy Spirit comes and lives right here. That's really what we're talking about. That's what this new covenant is. That is why it is so far better than the old one, because God moves in the Old Testament laws and rituals will pass away. They're obsolete. We are free to mine their wisdom. We are free to understand the settings that they describe through which the new comes. But we cannot forget that the new has come. Part of the problem we have today is understanding that this move from external to internal isn't a move to an individualistic religion. It's easy to be tempted to think that because our communication with God moves from external through regulations, rules, teachings, and writings to internal, the Holy Spirit speaking to us and his voice being confirmed in the written word around us, that what God speaks to us is true for the world and everyone else around it, and we're at the center of the universe now because we know what God has said. The temptation when the covenant moves from external is to internal is to get messed up in our thinking yet and thinking that we're the center of the universe again. But it is possible, it is necessary for us to understand that this communication moves inside us but is still corporate for the whole family. We are still understanding how we live as a part of this kingdom of God in which Jesus is the center of things. I think at some level, maybe it's more like an ant colony than anything else I can think of. There's one mind leading this organization. It is the mind of Jesus. And we hear it in ourselves, but we respond with all the rest together. That's, that's sort of how it is. I mean, Jesus is the center of this thing, not us. And so that means our commitment to the health of one another, 
our commitment to unity and peace within the body of Christ, all these things are extremely important to the way we understand what Jesus is saying to us. We have to understand we're born into a kingdom. We're each born individually into a kingdom where we together worship the one who's at the center of everything. We're invited to join him in his story. That means really the metaphor that best describes the Christian faith is as individuals we join Jesus on his journey and his mission to save the world. That's why Christianity can never be boiled down to life insurance as a get out of hell free card. It's never that because the orientation is not how do I escape judgment? The orientation is how do I join Jesus? How do I join what he is doing here and now in order to bring about the reconciliation, the peace, the unity of his creation? And the question then is, will you step into that story? Will you become a part of what Jesus is doing? Can you release your own definitions of success knowing they are doomed to fail with all of humanity? And will you step in to the story of Jesus which is to bless and reconcile all that there is? That's, that's the core of what this faith is. That's what the new covenant is about. It's about joining Jesus on his mission. That's, that's, that's exciting to me. I, I wanna be a part of that story. I want, you know, I'm happy to be a bit player in that drama. Whatever that is, I'm happy to do whatever he calls me to do and whatever my community of brothers and sisters in the church call me to do in response to what the Lord has called me to do. We, we've got responsibilities to one another because we all are adopting the same measure of success. We're all adopting the same definition of success which says we succeed to the extent that we step into the mission of God's making everything new. And I want to see what it looks like for God to make everything new. I mean, you know my story, I know some of your stories. We know that everything isn't new, everything isn't right in our own family's stories. We know the church, being as human as it is, has made all kinds of mistakes across the decades. Lots of places where the church has gotten caught up in its own story, forgetting that Jesus is the center of all things and that we are his story. And that when what we're doing doesn't match up to the measure of his life, we, we should know we're out of step. So we know there's plenty of work to do, but he's willing to use us to do it to the extent that we will listen to what he's saying we will obey the royal law of love, which is to love him and to love one another. And then together, 
participate with him. So how do you know what he's telling you to do? I mean, that's a pretty practical question. How do you know what he's telling you to do? And I only know one way, and that is shut up and listen. I mean, how else, how else do you know? If there isn't any space of quiet in your life, how do you ever know? I mean, I think eventually, if you honestly are trying to pursue God, but you don't know how to shut up. Do you know anybody like that in your life? People who genuinely want to be helpful but can't shut up long enough to take instruction? I mean, the urge that comes over you is to just to give him a nice little slap on the face and say, be quiet for a minute. And, and I think God does that to us sometimes. Not to damage or injure us, but to get our attention and say, could you please be quiet long enough to hear what I have to say? Because I am convinced that God has no difficulty communicating his will to us. If he did, he would be less than God, right? So if there's a communication problem, it's not on his end, it's on our end. And it's about whether or not we really want to hear, whether we're really willing to let him define success for us, and whether we're really all in or not. But we really can't expect to figure this out until we go all in, shut up, and listen. And when we do that, we will find that not only can we hear when he speaks, and I'm not saying he's speaking every minute of every day, I'm just saying that when he speaks, we will hear, and we will find that there are others in the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, who can help us discern. So when we pray together and listen together, we enhance our ability to understand what he's saying to us. But the question is, do we want to know badly enough to do that? I don't know, I want to. I wanna know what he's saying, I want to find ways to place him at the center of my story and to understand my story in terms of his success. And I need friends around me who will tell me when I'm too much making myself the center of the universe or who will tell me when I'm relying too much on my own opinion or who will point out to me when my actions seem out of whack with what the life of Jesus is demonstrating. I need those friends. I need those people who can be that honest with me, can tell me the truth about myself, who can keep me listening, who can listen with me, who I can say to, I think this is what I'm hearing. Is, is, does that make sense to you? And together we can listen? That's the nature of the new covenant that we've been given. Lay down your own formula for success. Stop writing your own story. Step into the kingdom and become a part of his story. And allow him to use you in ways 
you didn't think were possible. None of this can happen until you choose to step into the kingdom. The first step into the kingdom is the same for everyone. It is, Lord Jesus, I have made mistakes, I've messed up, would you forgive me? Statement number one. Statement number two, Lord Jesus, I'd like to be your disciple and I need your help to figure out how to do that. I want to try to follow you, would you help me? His answer to that has been and always will be yes. He will help you. And when you invite him to help you, he sends along the down payment of the Holy Spirit who moves right into your heart and all of a sudden you have a new conduit to the Father you never had before. That's stepping into the kingdom. But once in the kingdom, will you allow Jesus to be the center or we just pick up the pen and start writing your own story again. It's my prayer that together we will understand the nature of the new covenant, that Jesus is the center of everything and that he invites us into his story so that our stories can find meaning in that place. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, forgive us for the times that we have made ourselves the leading character in our own story, where we've sought fame or privilege or wealth or power or security in places other than in you. Forgive us for that, Lord. And help us to fix fix our eyes on you, to find you at the center of everything, to orient our lives around you, to embrace your royal law of love, and to live with integrity as citizens of the kingdom of God, members of the new covenant, sealed in your blood. Hear our prayer, O Lord. Amen. May the joy of Christ be yours. And may you live as citizens of the kingdom of God, fully expressing both his joy and the law of love to the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.